Chapter 13, or Lesson 13, I didn't know how quite to describe this series of going through the Gospels and meshing together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. We know this as the account of the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman who came out to get water where Jesus was waiting for his disciples to return from the city with food. And, of course, we know Jesus, he was doing more than just waiting around. He knew that he had to be there to minister to this one solitary woman at a well that was very famous in Israel for the Israeli people, but also for the Samaritans, as we'll discover here in our text today. And there's a lot of spiritual truth that Jesus brings forth as he takes and I think masterfully um, begins to prod this woman's mind, her thinking. She came out with one sole purpose in in mind, to give water. And uh, when I was in Sudan in 2009, Every day, we would see women and children coming. We were in a compound for far-reaching ministries, and they had a well in the compound. And one of the things that um, surprised me and another missionary at the end of the two weeks that we were there, uh, one of the pastors, a Sudanese pastor in the... uh, He was a chaplain in the Sudanese army, but he had mentioned that Uh, Two things that really struck him about me and another missionary came up, and there was actually three others who came later. But uh, two of us flew up. We flew in in a bush plane, and we landed on a gravel runway in the middle of nowhere, and we were trucked out. And, I mean, they fixed the runway. There were people out there with shovels and smoothing it all out. Uh, And we saw the tukas, the huts, the grass huts, the brick huts, And the two things that James, this pastor, noted about us is one, that when we got there, we went right to work. It's like, well, I flew like 19 hours to even get to Africa, and of course I'm going to work. That's why I came here. And in the African culture, they travel somewhere, they take a day or two to rest, and then they get to work. And it just stood out to him that we went right to work. And it's like me and Tom looked at each other. It's like, well, that's why we came. We came to work. And the other thing is, you drank the water that we drink. And again, me and Tom looked at each other and thought, they said it was safe. (laughs) We didn't know. In fact, they said, we test the water daily. You can drink from it. But they said a lot of American pastors, when they would come over, they would demand bottled water and they wouldn't drink the water. And that just spoke volumes to them. Now, when they we were on the Blue Nile and they scooped up water from the Blue Nile and offered it to drink, we turned it down. And they laughed at us and we knew that we're not going to drink from that. They drank from it and the same, uh, it was just a piece of plastic that they had cut off, but the same thing that they were bailing the leaky boat back into the Nile, if they got thirsty, they would drink from the same thing. But... Because this base where we were at had a well, it was safe for the community, and they let the community know that they could come. 
and they couldn't come in the gate but one by one. So they would uh, be able to look through the gates and the well was probably 300 feet away and they would wait along the wall outside. Every day they would line up. And if they weren't lining up individually, their water, you know, it's like holding my place in line. They would have their, their jugs there that they would carry. And the women and the children would come daily. I don't know if I ever saw a man, and we'll look at that when we get to our text today. I don't know if I ever saw a man come and retrieve water from that well. They may have. But what happens in South Sudan today and Nimli Sudan, it's the same thing that was going on in biblical times as well. We have a need for water. It's a physical thirst that has to be satisfied every day. And there's a note that I have in my text today that I looked at um, information from the world site talking about water. And they said that in Malaysia, I believe it was, that women spend an average of 54 minutes a day just getting water, just water alone. So think of the value of that. If you have to, and I was thinking about that this morning as I was thinking about the text once again, that you are retrieving water that's going to uh, satisfy your thirst, help you cook food, wash your dishes, rinse yourself off, I mean, you're, you're getting everything, and we're so spoiled here where we have it on tap, and we just turn it on and get the water. But she was coming out. It was a daily thing. It was something that she would continue to have to do. But Jesus was there. And the Bible tells us that he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus was there because he needed to minister to an individual person that in turn would testify to her community that would cause a majority of the community to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's the significance sometimes of gathering together as the body of Christ. I believe every Sunday. When I was a kid, my friend, one of my best friends, he raced uh, motocross. It was something I said I would always do before I got older and I kept getting older and I've never done, and now my body would not let me do it. But it was always on Sunday. And back in the 1970s, they had a film titled On Any Sunday. That was the name of the film, On Any Sunday. But I've never forgot the name of the film, not because of MX Racing, but because of church. That I realized that on any Sunday, the Spirit of God can work and move in the heart of an individual, one person, is all that's needed, as we'll see today in our text. One person is all that is needed for the love of Christ to pour out in their souls in such a way that they receive that living water that they can't help but share with others to ignite a whole community for Christ. So I don't know about you, but when I come to church every Sunday, I'm coming with expectation. I'm coming with the expectation that the Holy Spirit will pour out in the heart of an individual or in the heart of everyone in this fellowship to do a work in us that we could not imagine. For some people, we come because that's what we do on Sunday. But may I encourage you, if you're thirsty, come with that expectation. Come with the expectation that only Christ can quench in our souls. 
We've been talking about the close of the first year of Jesus' ministry for quite a while. And he's about to, and next week we'll pick up in verse 43. And at this point, we'll go back to all four Gospels because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that he departs to the Galilee in John 4, 43. We will read that he departed to the Galilee. So we're going to see a transition. And the reason Jesus departed to the Galilee is because pressure was beginning to grow there in Jerusalem and the temple. The temple itself had become ground zero. He had cleansed the temple. He had kicked out the people who were selling their wares and um, He had disrupted the status quo. Kind of like when I was being raised in Southern Baptist denomination and not my dad's church, but a a different church that my wife and I used to attend over in Libertyville. They were very, in many ways, the pastor there, Pastor Sam Boyd, was very Calvary Chapel-like. I didn't know that. He brought us very close. And uh, his assistant pastor, my friend John Marcourt, and myself from that one Baptist church would all go out to California to go to the school of ministry. And so he was so close that three of his disciples ended up, he didn't, but we did, ended up at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa at different times, but we all ended up out there because he had helped to ignite a thirst for our soul, the teaching of the Word of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we were introducing uh, worship music, I believe was the issue at that time. And we were asked, my friend John and myself, John a guitar player, me a bass player, and uh, the pianist, we were asked on Sunday nights, could you help introduce worship music, much like what we do here today, and is very common in churches throughout the United States today. Not so much back in the 80s. It had to be introduced, and we had to do it slowly. And they had uh, their monthly meetings, and at one of those meetings, whatever it was, I forget the issue exactly, but the good old Baptist won the vote. And the reason I remember that, because somebody, after the vote went their way, somebody shouted out, good old Baptist. Jesus came in, and he was disrupting the status quo. I guess we came into this church, we were disrupting the status quo of the good old Baptist. That happens. It could even happen at a Calvary Chapel. We need to be open to the move of God's Spirit in our lives. But in order to kind of let things calm down because the hour had not yet come. It's very early in the ministry. He left to the Galilee. He left the epicenter of the temple in Jerusalem. But before going to minister in the Galilee, he ministered to the Samaritans of Sychar. And today we're going to look at a message I entitled True Worshippers from John 4, verses 1 through 42. And we're going to see in our message that Going through Samaria, verses 1 through 6. Living water, verses 7 through 18. In the spirit, in spirit and truth, verses 19 through 26. A divine interruption, verses 27 
through 34 and white unto harvest verses 35 through 42. I'm going to go ahead since it's so uh, short and our first point, just get us into it by reading the first six verses. And then I'm going to do two things. I'm going to open in prayer for the teaching of God's word and also ask God to bless the gifts, the offerings that uh, given to this fellowship and provision for this fellowship and our church and for each of us, I should say. So reading from John's gospel, we're looking at verses one through six. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to the Galilee and he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So, Father, as we prepare to receive from your words this morning, Lord, I'm thirsty. Lord, I pray we are all thirsty. Lord, help us to drink in that which you would have for us this day. We thank you, Lord, for the provision of this church. Nearly 30 years, Lord, you have given us a place to gather together to worship in this community, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the provision in times past. And we thank you, Lord, for current provision and look, Lord, for future provision for this place. But also, Lord, we know we are in an economy in our country that is really in a bad place. So, Lord, I just want to pray for each of us and the jobs we have, the provision that you bring into our households. Um, Lord, help us in these trying times. Help us, Lord, to be wise, but also, Lord, help us to trust in you. We ask, Lord, that you would not only provide for this house, but provide for each of our homes. And help us, Lord, to live for you and for your glory. Let us, Lord, have that expectation of your spirit to work in our midst this day. We pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I've been saying this the last few messages that we've been looking at from our chronological journey through the gospel, that John the Baptist and Jesus, they preached the very same message. We find they both said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It was a message of repentance. And in response to the repentance, the people were being baptized in the water of repentance, the baptism of repentance. And this was causing contention. And the religious rulers who were at first contending against John the Baptist. Now Jesus came on the scene and John introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and people were beginning to flock to Jesus as they should. The tension began to grow in Jerusalem. So as I said before, by going to the Galilee, he put distance between those who were wanting to bring harm to Jesus and his disciples. And when traveling to the Galilee, the Jews 
customarily avoided Samaria. Samaritans, and there's less than a thousand Samaritans today. I looked it up this morning and I saw numbers anywhere from 700 to 1,000 remaining in this community. But the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and they came out of the time that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. The Assyrians took the Israelis, those that they didn't kill in combat, they took and they relocated them. This was the custom of the uh, Assyrians. They would relocate the countries that they would conquer, and they would try to get their culture out of them, and then they would bring people into the country to continue to tend it, to take care of it. And the Bible tells us that the Assyrians brought five different nations into the northern kingdom of Israel. There were some Israelis that remained. And also the Bible tells us that when the people from five different nations came into the nation of Israel because they did not know the God of the land of Israel, God sent lions. They did not honor the Lord nor believe in him. So this is what God did. He sent lions in and he caused people to get killed by lions. And they sent word back to the Assyrian king and said, send us a priest to teach us the way of the God of this land. They did not realize that God is the God of the world and the universe, but this was their mentality. Teach us, send us a priest to teach us about the God of this land. And they did that. They learned to fear God and things got better for them. But they were half-breeds from those Israelis that remained, from the priests that returned. They developed a form of a religion that is different, that we will see clearly presented in our text today, that was different from the Jewish faith but similar in some ways. So it shouldn't be odd to us that Jesus would need to go through Samaria. Although the Jews customarily avoided this area, they would cross over the Jordan River. Coming out of Jerusalem, you'd go down to Jericho, and you could uh, cross over the Jordan River from there and travel north. And then you would get to the Sea of Galilee, and then they would cross back over the Sea of Galilee, and then proceed into the Galilee to the Jewish communities there. And they would pretty much bypass this whole area. But Jesus instead, he stayed on the west side of the Jordan. He, he took the direct route to and through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. And to this day, Jesus in Luke 19.10 tells us, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus needed to go through there because he knew there was someone he needed to minister to, someone he needed to talk to. Jesus is able to do that to this day. So this area, as we read, was an area that uh, where Jacob's well was located at. It was where... Uh, Joseph was given this property, and I believe in this area. Joseph, when he died, before he died, he told the children of Israel to take my bones back to Israel. And so he was mummified 
And 400 years later, or thereabouts, it was less than 400 years by the time Joseph died, when the children of Israel went out of the land of Egypt, they took the bones of Joseph with him. I believe we read in the Old Testament, we've been going through the book of Genesis and Exodus on Wednesday night, that someday you're going to hear a discovery of two Egyptian mummies they're of Jacob and Joseph. We know the scripture tells us that they were both mummified and they were both buried ultimately in the land of Israel, but in different locations. Joseph was in this area. This was the area that was awarded to him as an inheritance by his father Jacob, by Jacob's well. And so the Samaritans lived in this area. The Samaritans had intermarried with the remaining Jews. The Samaritans, although they initially did not learn to fear the Lord God of Israel, they had learned to fear the Lord God in such a way, but they would then go on to commit the same, some of the same sins that Israel had committed first by appointing for themselves priests from every class of people, and second, by continuing to serve other gods. They were not wholly committed to the Lord God of Israel. But Jesus, being weary of his journey, and some believe that Jesus was simply a good man, even a prophet of God, but not God himself. And in this account, we get a glimpse of his humanity. And the Bible tells us he was weary. He sat by the well. But we also see his deity. This should not surprise us that we see uh, in Scripture, we get a, a picture of his humanity, but also have an understanding of his deity. And the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, concerning Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. In verses 1 through 6, we close out with it being around the sixth hour. And this could simply mean it's either Jewish time, it's noon. Roman time is 6 p.m. in the evening. Take your pick. We can't know for sure. Uh, noon seems to make sense for me. It's the hottest time of the day normally, and so it would be a time when uh, people would avoid coming to the well. But the woman came at an odd time, as we will see. But we're going to learn that Jesus put the spiritual needs of others before his own physical need. He was weary, but he had a greater mission in mind as he sat by the well. So we read in verses well, 7 and 9, we pick up beginning our next point, living water, and that point taking us through verse 18, but beginning in verse 7, we'll read verses 7 through 9. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and she said, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, asked a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. So there was more to the half-breed racial tensions that perhaps was going on in this situation. They had battled against each other. Uh, they did not have dealings. The Samaritans, when the Jews came back, 
from the Babylonian captivity and came back to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans offered to help. And the Jews said, no way, you can't help us build the temple of God. And so they were snubbed and it kind of just helped build a wall, a division between the two classes of people there, the Israelis and the Samaritans. And there are other issues at play as well. But it was not customary for a man to speak to a woman. He was a rabbi, a prophet. She would identify that later on. So that was different. But he was Jewish and she was a Samaritan woman. And so she was surprised. Now, some believe that she came out to the well at 3 p.m. And what time did he say it was? At the sixth hour, sorry, at the sixth hour. So it could have been noon, could have been 6 p.m. But she came at the well in a solitary place at a solitary time because she was an outcast of her community. She didn't come out with the other women. And we'll see why in a moment. She was surprised that Jesus would even speak with her, but Jesus masterfully took their conversation and brought it to the spiritual realm. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why Jesus sat at that well. And when the woman came to him, he began to explore through his conversation to masterfully take a simple thing of drawing physical water from a well and to bring about spiritual fruit that day and to quench a spiritual thirst. So verses 10 through 12, we pick up reading. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. And so this confused her, her heart being set on physical things. She could not see past the physical. It's like you don't have a rope, you don't have a bucket. The well is very deep, and we'll see how deep in a moment. But the living water in the Greek, it's a term that could be used for flowing water. So think of a a stream or think of a, a well that's just springing up from the ground. Flowing water. Maybe she was still thinking physical things. Of course she was at this point. But Jesus was talking about a spiritual water that he was offering to her. It was a gift of God, he proclaimed to her. If you knew the gift of God, this gift of God regards the salvation of the souls of those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.8, it tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works. It is a gift of God. And the living water, that water that she thought perhaps uh, a stream or artesian well bubbling up from the ground, but he's talking about a physical thirst 
that could only be satisfied, the spiritual thirst that could only be satisfied by the spiritual water of the well that comes from God, which in Isaiah 12.3 says, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And also speaking about that thirst that can only be satisfied through the Spirit of God that gives us this drink in Isaiah 44.3 where he says, I will pour out water on him who is thirsty, floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. So spiritual thirst that Jesus is wanting, he knows that she has. She has been up to this point in her life trying to satisfy with physical things the thirst that was in her heart, in her soul, that could not be satisfied by physical things. So the well itself, Sir Robert Anderson in 1866, he he wrote about the well that was discovered uh, historically It was always there since the time of Jacob. That is so cool to think that these places are there to this day to be uh, just marking biblical events that we read about in Scripture. We can still find in the land of Israel to this day. But he, he wrote about the well itself. He said that it's just wide enough for a man to pass through with his arms lifted up for the opening of the well itself, about four feet long. And then once you get past that point, that it would open up to about seven feet, six inches wide, and then would drive down. It was sunk through until it hit a strata of limestone fragments where the water there is found. And uh, it's been measured in 1935 of being 135 feet deep. And so... Just that, you have no rope. They didn't, we think of a Western maybe in an old well at somebody's front yard in a house or whatever, and they have the well and the rope and the bucket that you crank down and up. Apparently, they brought their own rope with them. It wasn't supplied. The woman said, you don't have a rope. How can you give me a drink? But of course, Jesus speaking more so of spiritual water than the physical water In verses 13 through 15, he says, Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. Whatever drinks the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So again, she's thinking physical. Yeah, this is a pain. Every day, as I said, collecting of water is largely where water is not piped into a home, is largely the work of women and children in other cultures in this world. As I observed in Africa, as I said, I don't remember men going to the well to get water. They may have. I was busy working while I was there, but I saw women there. In fact, I, I was doing masonry work, so I needed water. And I was waiting for a woman to finish getting her water. And she had a little girl that did not like this white man, um, I guess. I'd asked Michael, one of the missionaries there uh, from South Africa. Now he's the head chaplain at this base 
And I asked him, I said, do you remember the first time you saw white people? Kawazi was what they would say when we would come into a town and the little children would shout, Kawazis, Kawazis, white people, white people. Uh, they would run all around the truck. We were riding in the back of the pickups and easily seen. And I asked him, I said, do you remember? And he looked at me kind of like, that's an odd question. And then he said, yeah, I was six years old. I remember. I mean, it stood out. Sudanese are very dark, and I am not. So there's a big contrast between us. But uh, at the well, I was just waiting. My turn. I needed a bucket of water to make some concrete. And she stopped. And this was not uncommon for the Sudanese women to serve the men in this way. She stopped what she was doing. She took my bucket. She filled it up for me. They warned us not to do this because it would be the nature of our Western society to get the water for them. And they said, don't do this. Just let them do what they do. So I was respecting their culture and everything. But she stopped. She got my water, gave me the buckets back, and then she went back to do her work. Where I wanted to help her, but I was told I shouldn't do that. This was a daily thing that they had. Sir, give me this water that I do not have to come here and draw. But he's speaking about living water that springs up into everlasting life. He would say at the temple once again on one of the holy days, standing there at the temple where they would traditionally dump water down the steps of the temple to mimic the water that God provided there in the wilderness during the 40 years of the wilderness wandering at those times where they struck the rock and water came out. They would mimic that by dumping uh, water down the temple stairs to have that flow of water going down the steps to kind of remind the people of God's provision of water. And at that time, Jesus stood up in John 7, 37 through 39. He cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus has been glorified. This water, this living water is available for us to this day. So the woman's heart set on physical Things on that physical thirst, the daily routine of drawing water. Romans 8 5 tells us, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. So he said to her, verses 16 through 18, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have well said. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now we might understand why she came out to the well by herself. She had been married five times, and she had given up on marriage. She was just living with a guy at this point. But why did Jesus confront her about her current circumstance, how she was living her past like this. 
It is because she needed to acknowledge her sin against God in order to partake of this living water. And the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So she rightly said, I have no husband, but it was merely a half-truth. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But Jesus willingly ministered to this woman because she was not beyond his saving grace. The living water of God's salvation is still available to all who call upon the name of Jesus. So the woman, I believe this was kind of trying to deflect off herself. All right, I'm busted. So in spirit and truth, verses 19 through 26 and verses 19 and 20, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I find this humorous. There are certain men and women I probably not want to get into a biblical debate on in scripture but i would especially not want to contend with jesus about the word of god let's see if we got this right jesus our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you jews say that in jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship i believe she was simply trying to deflect deflect Uh oh man you hit hard i don't like it that you know about me so let's talk about religion. Let's get into an argument. And this can happen to this day. We want to share Christ with someone and they'll want to get in some kind of, well, how many angels can appear on the head of a pin of a needle? Uh, I don't know. And why does that matter? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior or not? But they ask questions, foolish questions like this, because they're merely wanting to deflect Let's get into an argument. Let's talk about something else. Let's get the issue off of me and onto something else. So they argue about the location of worship. This mountain, Mount Gerizim, to this day, they still worship there. I looked up the Samaritans today. They still, a community of less than a thousand today, they still offer sacrifices upon this mountain. So they instituted a different place. They built a temple there. Alexander Great built a temple for them that was destroyed, that stood for 200 years, and then was rebuilt by Herod the Great. So they had a place of worship. But according to Genesis 22, we know that the place where Abraham offered Isaac, not Ishmael, but Isaac, was on Mount M Menorah. <laughs> Menorah. <laughs> Moriah. Too close to Easter and the menorahs and everything. In fact, in Exodus on Wednesday night, we were just looking at the menorah. Mount Moriah is the place where we worship. But Jesus wasn't going to get drug into that argument. This is a good thing for all of us. We want to share about Christ, then share about Christ. But some people just want to pull you into an argument that you'll have no win. Just avoid them. Don't go down that rabbit trail. If they want to change the subject, let them change it. If they don't want to stay on it, just, I don't know. You know, sometimes it's just, you just keep digging a hole that goes nowhere. And maybe it's time to walk away for a, a new battle another day. 
But the woman, he said, verses 21 through 24, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. So he's saying, you are not correct. Our fathers say on this mountain we should worship. You Jews say um, in Jerusalem we should worship. He plainly told her, you're wrong. I did that um, here in this church many years ago. There was a, a couple of gals came in one Sunday. And uh, the gal, younger gal in her 20s, said when I was in college, I went through the Bible, I blacked out every verse in Scripture that I didn't agree with, and I said, well, you were wrong. You were blacking out the very Word of God that He would have for us just because you don't agree with it. Just because it hits and hurts doesn't mean that it's not the Word of God. So I plainly told her, you are wrong. Her friend said, see, I told you. She had also told her, you're wrong in doing that. And sometimes we just need to say it. You're wrong. This is the very word of God, and you're not to tamper with it. So sometimes we need to be clear. When they are wrong, they are wrong, according to the word of God. But we need to make sure that we're standing upon the word of God. So you worship what you do not know. Verse 22, we worship. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father will seek such to worship him, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So instead of falling into what was for them an age-old debate about the proper place to worship, Jesus taught about a new location, a place of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, not on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans said, or Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where the Jews said they should worship. But true worship is a condition of the heart, in Psalm 34:18, it says, The Lord drew near those who have a broken heart, saves those who have a contrite spirit. So it's really talking about the condition of our heart, a broken heart, a contrite spirit. Since we have been created in the image of God, according to Genesis 1:26, we have been created in a lesser triunity of spirit, soul, and body. When Adam and Eve sin by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they fell in the garden, they no longer could have fellowship with God, communion with God, because it was through their spirit, when God created them, that spirit was uppermost. And through the spirit, they had fellowship with God. God would walk in the cool of the garden in the evenings and fellowship with them. But when they ate of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked. They tried to cover their naked w nakedness with fig leaves. But what happened is that their spiritual makeup of body, soul, and spirit, the body, the flesh became uppermost. They no longer could have communion with God. But Jesus came to awaken, alive in our spirits, that we can have fellowship with God once again. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, thus bringing our whole spirit, soul, and body in fellowship with the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're able to have fellowship 
with him through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but awakening our spirits that we can commune with God in spirit and in truth. So he said to her, in verses 25 and 26, she said first, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. This is the first time going through the Gospels that Jesus actually told someone, I'm the Messiah. Others had said it about Jesus. John said, behold, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. Uh, We go back just a few pages in the Gospel of John. We find that Philip went and, well, first of all, Andrew sought out his brother, Simon, and said that he sought out his brother in John 1, 41, saying, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Others have said it about Jesus, but now Jesus has said it about himself to this woman. I who speak to you am he. And with her acknowledgement of the coming Messiah, Jesus told her, I am he. Romans 10, 20 says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. And God still seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So at this point, there's this divine interruption in verses 27 through 34. We find initially the disciples returned. So at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that Jesus talked with the woman Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? No one said, Jesus, what are you doing? Have you ever said that to Jesus in a prayer maybe? What are you up to, Lord? The disciples were at least smart enough at this point to not question what Jesus was up to. Maybe we need to learn to be at least that wise. But they did not say, what do you seek to the woman? What are you doing? Or to Jesus, why are you talking with her? The woman left her water pot. That which she came out to do, she left. No longer was the physical water important to her. She had began to drink from the living water of Jesus Christ. She went away into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. What an announcement that that must have been. The woman that came out to the well by herself, probably because she had been shunned by the other women, and the community no doubt knowing, hey, this is the gal who's been married five times. In fact, she might have been saying to five of her her ex-husbands and the guy that she was currently living with, at least six men that she had been with, come and see someone who has said, all that I've ever done before. And they came. Her testimony was simply this, come see. Nathaniel, when he came to his friend, when Philip came to his friend Nathaniel, I had it backwards, in John 146, Nathaniel asked and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. Come and check it out. She told them of how Jesus revealed the truth 
of her life. And they came. They wanted to see this man who told me all the things that I've ever done before, her words. Years ago, I read a book by Paul E. Little. He's long been with the Lord. But the name of the book is How to Give Away Your Faith. And if I were to summarize the book, and I have no quotes from the book itself, but it's a book that's always stayed with me. It taught me about witnessing. is not just about the words that we say, although the words are very important. We need to make sure we get the words right, or at least as best as we can and continue to learn and grow. It's also about building relationships, finding connection points in which we can share our faith with others. Like the blind man who had been healed by Jesus in John 9:25, he said, One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know much about Jesus, but I know I can see. We need to be willing to share. And she didn't have a lot of knowledge, but she shared what she had, and the whole town responded. In the meantime, verses 31 through 34, the disciples urged Jesus to eat, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food to eat, which you do not know of. And they're thinking, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The disciples, they long for spiritual things, but their head was still in the physical. And sometimes we get this way as well. Maybe... It's a Sunday morning, it's the first of the month, and we're thinking, man, we've got to make potluck stuff. And we get caught up in the physical, and the Lord is wanting to feed us spiritually, and we're worried about the taco, whatever, or beans and cornbread that we're making. That's what we did. Um, we're more worried about getting that ready. And the physical food is good. We need it. And the fellowship is good. We need it. But we need the spiritual filling too. In Job 23:12, it says, I have treasured your, the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. And food is necessary, but so is the spiritual. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said to Satan, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father from the mouth of God. And so he came to do the will of God. He came to finish the work of God. And we know that that work is that work of salvation. And so we need to be sensitive to God's divine interruptions. It may bring others to Christ. So they were interrupted. Jesus was talking to this woman. The disciples came. The woman went off, shared with the town. The Samaritans now are coming back to the town. But what I want us to understand, unlike the disciples at this point, we need to be sensitive to what God may be doing, that we can be in tune with the Spirit's work. So Jesus, white unto harvest, we close out in verses 35 through 42. He says to his disciples, Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. When he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, one sows, another reaps, I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored, 
and you have entered into their labors. So Jesus begins by talking about the physical harvest that was four months away. Now, some have said and theorized, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but when Jesus said, look at the fields, he was pointing to the Samaritans. They have uh, believed that the Samaritans themselves wore white garments. My wife is from Merida, Yucatan. She's full-blooded Mexican, although you would never know it by looking at her. But my um, brother-in-law, Javier, said that, yeah, the Yucatan is where the white people are. And I said, what do you mean? Because they have light skin? Lily clearly has light skin. He goes, no, because they wear white clothing. And he, they called them the white people. It's the clothing that they wore, not the color of her skin and her brothers and sisters, some darker, some lighter um, than her. But it's believed to be the garment that he was pointing at. Look at the fields and the people coming out in their white garments. The field is already white for harvest. Now, this is a term that speaks about the crops needing to be picked right now. I was sharing with one of my grandsons. He he loves the uh, Panera cherry things we get. The What is that called? A coffee cake? Coffee cake, and it's got the cream cheese, cherry, cream cheese, cherry on there. And he he likes to come and snatch them during the week, Mom. But uh, he's like, mmm, cherry. And I said, we had cherry trees in our house once. And uh, for two weeks, it was great. We rented this house in Zion for a couple of years. And for two weeks, we had the best cherry pie ever. Lily is a great baker. But after two weeks, worms came, and then the birds came, and the cherries were gone. So we had two weeks. I thought it was kind of cool. God gave humans two weeks. Get your cherries right now. Otherwise, the worms are coming. And when the worms come, the birds are coming. And you have no, no hope after that. So that's kind of the sense of this. They're white under harvest. If you don't go in the fields right now, you're going to lose it. The timing is crucial. The whole season of plowing and planting and preparation is for the harvest that is to come. Farmers do not go on vacation during harvest time. They have been prepping for that whole season for the harvest itself. You wait until after the harvest to vacation, but not before the harvest. Ken Ham, the uh, founder of Answers in Genesis, he has a book called Already Gone. And the book itself is addressing teenagers within the church today at the earliest 14 years old that the church has already lost them. They're already gone. But in that book, he said, this is what I see. I see a window of opportunity that any churchgoer can take advantage of. Two-thirds of the people who have left the church are either planning on coming back or they might consider coming back. All it might take is a sincere invitation from a friend to encourage them to make the jump. But the window of opportunity is slowly closing. There are people to this day who have left the church, but in their mind, they're thinking, I'm going to get there one day. They might just need the encouragement of a friend, a family member, be willing to invite them. 
In Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. This month's memory verses. The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest and send the laborers out into his harvest. And we need to be those who are willing not only to pray for the Lord to send people into the harvest, but be willing to go ourselves. We might be those who are water. We might be those who uh, plant. We might be those who help to bring in the harvest. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. Rarely do we think about the first people who worshipped on this property. In the 1960s, the name of the church became the Gospel Ranch. And the very first place they worshipped here on this property was an old corn crib. Have you ever seen a corn crib? It's a barn where the sides are pretty much half open that they can allow air to ventilate in. So not a very warm place to worship, but they worshipped in the old corn crib. It was their first sanctuary. But we were told, Kevin and I, some uh, people visiting from the founding families that uh, several years ago came back for a family reunion, and they asked if they could come to the church, and they spent the afternoon with us, and I was just asking them questions. And, you know, our church is not the most modern facility. It's not a very large place. But they told Kevin and I that every block that was laid in this building was prayed over as they were building this. They built the thing. When I do work around here, I sometimes wish they hired people who knew what they were doing to build, but they (laughs) built the thing. (laughs) Sometimes it's not the best construction. But the hearts of the people building, every stone, every block prayed over every window that was set there's a point to where they said they were running about 60 in attendance and in a four-month period of time the spirit of god poured out in this place and within four months there was 300 attending here they prayed over it they prayed for god to move And I know a lawyer that used to, I know the lawyer separate from the church, but when I look back at some of the old documents of the church, it's like, oh, he took care of some of the legal things of the church. So we rarely ever talk about it. In fact, he never even, he knew I was the pastor of Calvary Chapel. He knew where I was at, but he never mentioned his work with the church in times past. But he did tell me once that this place was hopping in the 70s. And the hopping was the Spirit of God descending upon this place. The problem was, as it is for every generation, the sinfulness of man is a challenge to each generation. But our fellowship has been built upon the work of others. Some planted, and we get to water at times. But may we together reap and sow and rejoice what God has given us, willing to sow and reap in God's harvest And many of the Samaritans of that city, they came out, verse 39 through 41. They believed in him because of the woman who had testified, the woman, singular, who had testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own words. So she 
gave testimony. Come and meet the man who told me all the things that I've ever done. And it's like, woman, you are messed up. I want to see this guy. And then they begged him to stay. And then they heard the words of Jesus. And then they believed because of his words. It began with the testimony of another. But then faith began to well up in their own hearts. They began to drink of the living water that only Christ can give. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 and 2 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except for Christ and him crucified. It doesn't have to be difficult to be a witness for Jesus Christ. All we need to know, as Paul said, Christ and him crucified. So then they said to the woman, Verse 42, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. What began as a personal testimony from a woman who had a questionable background ended up with many people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith then comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And it can be that our personal faith journey can inspire others to search out Christ for themselves. And it's no better testimony to hear than like this Samaritan woman as they spoke to her. Now we believe to share Christ with someone, to watch them accept Christ, but then come to that place to where they basically say these same, same words. Now we believe, not because of what you said, but because we have heard Jesus And we know that Jesus is the Christ. And we know now that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The testimony of one can change the life of many. If only we're willing to speak. Let's go ahead and stand together. As we close out, Pastor Kevin will be down front. Dave and I will close out in one song. And Kevin's here for those who would need prayer today. Perhaps you've realized today that you've not been worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We've learned today that only a broken and contrite heart can bring us into the right place of true worship. Psalm 51:17 says, The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a contrite heart. These, O Lord, you will not despise. And I can't think of any better place here at this church where we know in times past the Spirit of God has poured out upon this place I love that, that it happened before, but I want it to happen right now. I'm looking for the Spirit of the Lord to pour out on this place now. For the Lord to speak to broken spirits, broken and contrite hearts, to restore us, to refresh us, whatever that case might be. Isaiah 57:15. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And Father, how our hearts need reviving today. Our world is messed up. We all understand that. And there are challenges in this world, Lord, that seem that the only answer is you're coming again a second time. It seems, Lord, that we are 
close to that time. But Lord, until you come, I pray, Lord, for your spirit to move upon this house, move upon our hearts, pour your spirit out upon this place. Let us, Lord, be a people who have broken and contrite hearts. Let us, Lord, if we have not been drinking from the water that you can only supply, that living water, perhaps we have drank from it in times past, but Lord, we need a refreshing again. We're thirsty once again. Let us come and drink from the well that only you can provide, the well that where you can only satisfy. Help us, Lord, this day. It is our prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.